all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 279 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this episode of the SLS Cast is the honeydew episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that there is a book entitled Honeydew, Stories by Edith Perlman. And this wonderful little book has 279 pages, yes. And as an added bonus, if we were jump into a time machine and go back three years ago, according to the Chicago Tribune, it is among the top fiction or nonfiction titles worth gift-giving. So there's even that. And with that wonderful little bit of roundabout knowledge about a book with 279 pages, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. And happy belated Mother's Day to you, Matthew. Oh, thanks. My mammary glands are super ecstatic to hear that. (laughs) I can hear the, uh, well, I guess men can lactate, right? Can men not lactate? I really? I, I don't think they can, no. They they lack the necessary equipment under the skin. So you're saying if you are a man, technically, physiologically, biologically, and then you find out that you are lactating, that's like a realization that you've come upon suddenly. Yes, I would say that that is true. That'd be a hell of a realization. Let me allow me to backpedal a little bit. How was uh, Mother's Day with your wife? Did she enjoy it? Was she a happy mom? Um, I'm gonna go with yes. I I honestly don't know. Um, yesterday's Mother's Day was the day where Jen did whatever the hell she wanted, and I just like let her. So, um. I got her the entire series of Mama's Family, um, because it's something she's been bugging about, bugging me about for years. And I got a really, really good deal on it. So I got her that. Uh, however, on Saturday evening, she went out to go see our niece do something. And I made plans. I had made plans a while back with another, with an old buddy of mine. So I was over at his house and, was drinking all night and then she went up and did some church thing on Sunday morning and I had to be at work at five and so she was out the afternoon so I honestly I didn't even hardly see her until like 10 o'clock last night well so I, I assume her mother's day was good some people would consider neglecting the husband neglecting the mother the ultimate mother's day gift well I'm hoping that's what she thought yeah that's something you don't want to find out like 20 years from now like matthew i've been holding this against you for 20 years that one time you decided to leave me alone and that's right i'm telling you that that there's statute of limitations on that nonsense at least in my book she wants to she wants to come at me with that in 20 years i'm gonna be like yeah statute of limitations on that ran out like 90 days after that mother's day from 2018 so i'm sorry (laughs) Not really much I can do for you in that regard. Everybody over in my area, and that would just be me in the more significant SO, this is now Sickland territory because I was sick all last week, and now the more significant SO 
is sick with what I had before. So I did the best thing a lover could do for <laughs> their lover and pass along that sickness. You you are giving an eternal gift, you see. This is something that will last the rest of her life because it boosts her immune system, you see. And it makes her stronger so that you will be able to stay together longer and forge an even stronger lifelong bond together. So I think I, I think what you did could could be construed as probably the most romantic thing. And there's something most romantic about giving her the soup and as she's eating the soup, you know, shivering, she, you know, she has the the shivers, you know, she's all bundled up, blanketed up, eating this chicken noodle soup and I'm behind her patting her on the head and I just give her little reminders that a hundred years ago, this would have killed her. <laughs> and it just rekindles our love. Uh, in fact, that couldn't be more from the truth. We we get on, we irritate each other when one of us is sick. It's it's fantastic. Oh no, I I, I think it's uh, I I just love how you know we're over in our own little la la land, living in la la land, and pretending that this is working. Um, but no, no, I I it's the same <laughs> over here. It, it is it's the same over here. If one of us is sick, it's usually best to you know check in periodically, help out if possible. But for the most part. Just let the other person rest and stay out of their way. Because even if you don't get on their nerves by irritating them because they're sick, they can get on your nerves because they're whiny little bitches. Um, or in, you know, you as the sicky could become the whiny little bitch. And you don't know that because you're sick. Oh, I, I know. I have a, I have a whiny little bitch gauge that I had implanted. <laughs> In my spleen that gives oh, my spleen good. a nice little good. jitter, nice little jolt when I get overly whiny or bitchy. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. Good to know. I'll, I'll, uh, I'd like to see that in action next time you're sick. My yeah. spleen itself or just the... No, no, the, the whiny little bitch uh, meter that, that is attached to the spleen. I think we all yeah. need a whiny little... I, I I long for the day, 30, 40 years from now, when automatically when a child is born... I, well, I, no, yeah, I guess you have to wait till the baby grows up. But maybe at the age of five, you know, before they begin kindergarten, kids, these kids, these five-year-olds, you know, they have to go get their shots and whatnot, be up to date with their shots... Uh, I guess unless they're Muslim, but and they don't have to, whatever. If you go and get your shots, uh, you have to get the little whiny little bitch shot. Mandatory. Mandatory. All right. Well, let's see. I finished uh, school for the semester this last week. I'll be going into summer school here in a couple weeks. Um, but you got A's in my classes, so that's good. And um, I wrestled with... Um, destroying all of a Chevy dealership because of lying, thieving pieces of shit that work there. Mm. Ultimately came to the conclusion that going to jail for the rest of my life wasn't worth it. So, you know, you know, just kind of let it go. But yeah, had a miserable experience buying, trying to buy a car this last weekend. And, um, long and the short of it was, is they approved a deal that they knew they shouldn't have approved. And instead of just letting me know, up front, hey, this deal is kind of shaky. We don't know if it's 100%. They just let it slide and hoped we would notice when they ultimately called us back and said, oh, hey, by the way, we're going to need to do a new contract to make you pay $100 more a month. 
And then, and then they just couldn't understand why I would be upset about that. It was a terrible, 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 uh, experience. And, uh, if you're, if, you know, if you listen out here, fuck Park Relay. That's all I have to say. You know, we should do. What's that? What should we do? We should check email. We haven't checked email for a while. Oh, we need to check the sack. That's right. Where is that sack? Where do you keep your, that mail sack? Well, let's find out. Check that mail sack. Check it good. Check that mail sack like you should. Oh, no! We suck again! Well, now I'm not happy anymore. I was happy, (laughs) thought we'd move ahead, you know, get past this, and yet here I am, sad again. But that's all right. If you if you feel the need to send us an email, we would love to hear from you. Please send us an email to the show at slscast.com. Uh, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. And you can even look us up on Patreon now. I've been mentioning it in our show closing spiel and everything. Um, but I really want to stress that we actually have Patreon now. So if you'd like to, you know, throw a buck at the show and see how it works out or you know maybe one of the other little fun reward tiers that we have um you can get anything from just a warm feeling of goodness in your tummy uh all the way to actually helping um p- uh plan the content for the show and stuff like that so um definitely head on over to Patreon and check us out we'd love to hear from you so i guess maybe we should uh do news you want to do news then let's let us Brighten up this show and move on over to the news. Here we go, folks. It's the news. All right. Well... I've got two pieces of news. Now, uh, we, we kind of on a whim, uh, decided to theme our news this week on sequels. Um, it didn't initially work out that way, but we have decided to do that. Um, we do, did, did we want to at least, did you have anything on Margot Kidder? I did, but I didn't pull it up. Okay, well then, just to briefly mention then, um, we can, we, we will try our best to have a proper news piece for her next week. Um, but as we record this today, uh, of course, is May 14th as we record, um, Margot Kidder, uh, did pass away. Uh, she was 69, of course, chiefly remembered as Lois Lane and um had a had a very long film career and definitely struggled with some things back in the 90s um but bounced back thankfully and um just kind of sad you know it's one more piece of our uh cinematic history especially in regards to superheroes that's kind of fallen away and um yeah but thankfully at least in this regard she did pass away in her sleep in her home in Montana so that's th- in that regard at least um you know, peacefully is, 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 I guess as good as anyone can hope for. Um, so yeah. So outside of that, um, what do you want to do, uh, for, for start with Tim? Should we start with a, a sequel news about a movie that's like 10 years in the making or something that's like almost 30 years in the making? Ooh, how about 10 years? Why not? 
10 years. All right, here we go. So from the rap.com by way of Jeremy Fuster, Warner Brothers sets Sherlock Holmes 3 for Christmas 2020. Yes, threequel will be follow-up to 2011's Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows. Yes, that's right. Warner Brothers and Village Roadshow announced that a third installment in its Sherlock Holmes franchise starring Robert Downey Jr. as the famed detective is in the works with a release date planned for Christmas Day 2020. Um, yeah, I mean, so Downey actually won a Golden Globe in 2010 for his performance as Holmes in the first installment in the series. Uh, and um, we've just been waiting, 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 waiting uh, for this to happen. Of course... No director has been chosen for this one, and yet Guy Ritchie directed the first two in the series. So it'll be interesting to see um, where they go in terms of a director. Uh, according to the article, Ritchie is currently directing Disney's upcoming remake of Aladdin, uh, which comes out next year. So we'll see what's happening there. Uh, bounced around in that article a little bit. So again, if you'd like to read up on that, therap.com, by way of Jeremy Fuster. Warner Brothers sets Sherlock Holmes 3 for Christmas 2020. Tim, thoughts? Because I am stoked. I've literally been waiting for this for seven years, and I could never figure out what the hell was going on. Well, I was never a huge fan of the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes movies. I think when the first one came out, I thought it was pretty interesting. And then the second, the sequel came out, and it was bigger, flashier, more shaky, cameo-er. It, it felt like a caricature of its own self. Now, I was able to substitute the vat in my soul of, of Sherlock Holmes' screen depictions with the TV show Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, the BBC show. And that's been holding steady for a while now, but uh, the last season or so, even that Sherlock is getting a little too hammy, a little too over the top. So who knows, maybe maybe Sherlock Holmes 3 will, I, I don't know, be better than the other ones? I don't know. I don't know. I, I just, I, I have my reservations because Guy Ritchie is good, but he hasn't had a great movie in a while. Now, I loved The Man from U.N.C.L.E., but even that, you know, went a little bit down the drain during its third act with the whole shaky cam and mindless action. So okay, fair enough. All right, well, you you've got some. Let's let's bounce back and forth. What do you got for us, sir? Now, what did you think about Ron Howard's 1980s film Willow? Were you a big fan of it? We'll never keep up with those horses. <sighs> then we will have to track them. That would take forever. Besides, even if we find them, they'll catch us. Stick us in cages, torture us, and finally devour us. Are you suggesting we go home? Nah, this is more fun. All right, fine. No, <laughs> I, I was not a super big fan of it. Um, I, I, I didn't hate it by any stretch of the imagination. And I know, I, I know we've discussed this somewhat before, so I, I don't. I, I'll try not to go on ad nauseum. But really, um, as you know, I, I remember the movie kind of being um, f fantasy fun, as it were. But I, I can really only remember Lenny and Squiggy being the like the little miniature dude thingies or whatever miniature people 
who were on there uh, having some kind of special misadventure. The one village elder guy who keeps getting like bird pooped on. And then the one scene where Val Kilmer gives the root to the baby and Willow's all pissed off about it. And he's like, no, it's good. It'll put hair on her chest. She's a princess. She doesn't need hair on her chest. And outside of that, I don't really remember much else about it. I don't remember. I mean, I didn't, I, I, I would never say I hated the film or anything, but it's never struck me as something that is kind of like, oh my God, why haven't we had any more Willow movies? Right. And I feel very much the same way. And apparently that's the general consensus towards this movie. A lot of people just haven't seen it in years and don't really remember too much about it. I think the nostalgic factor and brief memories might make you look back on it more handsomely. But really, it's not that great of a movie. We are apparently getting a sequel to Willow via comicbook.com. Ron Howard confirms Willow sequel discussions. This here is written by Joseph Schmidt, and this here was published on May 12th. It says this, Legendary director Ron Howard will make his first foray into the galaxy far, far away when Solo, a Star Wars story, premieres later this month, but it's not his first collaboration with Lucasfilm. Howard directed the movie Willow in 1988, featuring Val Kilmer in Star Wars' stalwart Warwick Davis in the title role... And three decades later, he's starting to think about a sequel to the classic fantasy film. Saying, quote, I don't want to give away too much, but there is still talk of Willow. We couldn't call it Willow 2. I think it would focus a lot on Alora Danan, although Willow would have to be significantly involved, end quote. In the movie, Willow comes across the infant Alora, who is prophesized to destroy the evil queen Bavmorda. Willow teams up with the charismatic swordsman Mad Mardigan, played by Val Kilmer, to help keep the child from Bavmorda's forces. Howard said that experience informed a lot of his decisions while working on the Han Solo spinoff movie, saying, quote, I thought about the movie a lot as I was working on Solo because there are certain scenes, especially around some of the Mad Mardigan stuff, was reminiscent of a character with a kind of swagger and bravado. And also, some of the humor around some of the action in Willow was something I inspired to get into Solo, end quote. Of course, there is no word yet on if a Willow follow-up will actually happen. The movie has since become a cult classic, but whether an audience demand is there is up for debate. Of course, in this day of remakes and reboots, there's a good chance for some potential sequel. However, concept fantasy properties are hard to pull off, but the goodwill and reputation that Lucasfilm has built over the last four decades could sway some studio executives. And the article goes on for a bit more. Uh, Again, if you want to read up more about a potential sequel to Willow with Ron Howard, uh, do check out the article exclusive Ron Howard Confirms Willow Sequel Discussions at comicbook.com. Do, would you like to see a sequel to Willow, or do you think that might be pushing it? Or do you, is Willow is such an um, obscure title that maybe you could still do something with it? I guess I my problem is is that I just don't see how you could feasibly do it with Warwick, Warwick Davis and everything. I mean, it's it's nice that they've got the storyline that they've got planned out and everything, but. I honestly, I just think too much time has passed. 
I just I just don't see a way to really make it good. I mean, it's just that simple. I, I so no, I guess I guess no, I would not want to see a Willow sequel, even after even after hearing that article. Right. I think it could be interesting. I think my interest could be piqued if Solo turns out to be a really good movie, a really good adventure sci-fi adventure film. Um, oh yeah i I thought we were I thought we were done living in a fantasy world on this show. I thought we finished that earlier with the, you know, we we totally don't have the whiny bitchiness. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. And now we're going to pretend that Solo's going to be good. Nah, come on. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I okay. I, I know this is not part of Willow, and I apologize for jumping in, but I feel like I have to say. We talked, I can't remember if it was an article that I brought up or an article that you brought up, but about two years ago, one of us brought up an article where Disney had basically said they were going to start putting out um, a Star Wars film every year. Correct. Uh, you know, and it was going to be like the main saga story and then like a so you know, like a Star Wars story, like a solo or whatever. And then, you know, hopefully if they catch some lightning in a bottle. Maybe they'll expand on the bonus stories or whatever. Um, and they were going to do the same thing with like Marvel stuff. You're trying to put, you know, one kind of Marvel movie out every year and they were going to keep doing this until people got sick of it. Well, everybody was, including myself, we've all been decrying, you know, that it's just too much, you know, too much Star Wars so quick, all in your face all the time. It's overload. And I'm, I'm actually kind of glad Solo's looking as terrible as it is. Um, not because I want it to fail, um, and not because I'm looking forward to it doing poorly, but because should all of our suspicions be confirmed, then perhaps it will finally slow this fucking train down, and maybe we can go back to every two or three years getting something that's worth waiting for. I'm still willing to look at the... You know, the silver lining, right? I hope it's good. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm with you too, but there, I, I like Ron Howard a lot. Uh, he's had, he's definitely had plenty of flops or a number of flops, but he has made some of my all-time favorite movies. Apollo 13, for example, A Beautiful Mind. I mean, some fantastic films that, I, you know, really there is a little spark of hope there that I hope the movie is good. I'm going to go into it not expecting Harrison Ford. I'm not going to expect it being anything like classic Star Wars. I just want it to be an entertaining, fun film with uh, with plenty of artistic direction behind it. And if that's the case, then going back to Willow, I could see Willow coming back. I'm not super familiar with it. Uh, I haven't seen it since I was super young. I don't know if it might work better as a miniseries or either rebooting it completely, but I, you know, it, it makes sense. The first movie is about the baby. You know, there's a prophecy surrounding this child. Well, the child needs to grow up. Does the prophecy come to fruition? I don't know. There, it, it, I think if they go down that route, it at least makes a little sense. However, I'm not going to back it at all until I do see what Ron Howard produces with Solo. I think that is a fair bar to set. It got me thinking about my one of my favorite Ron Howard movies, uh, which is Backdraft. Oh, sure. That was what 
really put Ron Howard on my radar as a really good director. I was 14 then, and I didn't realize that Opie from the Andy Griffith show had actually gone in and started like doing some serious directing. And so, yeah, and I loved this movie. I thought it was a fantastic movie. Anyway, yeah. All right. Well, then this is my last piece of news here from Deadline.com by way of Andreas Wiseman. Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter confirmed for threequel. Bill and Ted face the music. Now your dad's going for it in your own room. (laughs) Shut up, Ted. Your stepmom is cute, though. Shut up, Ted. Remember when I asked her to the prom? Shut up, Ted! That's right, folks. Most excellent! 27 years after we last saw the totally radical pairing of Ted Theodore Logan and Bill S. Preston Esquire, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter are now confirmed to reprise their roles in a third Bill and Ted movie. Yes, currently in pre-production, the movie has been written by the franchise's creators Chris Matheson of Imagine That and Ed Solomon of Men, of Men in Black with Dean uh, Pariseau of Galaxy Quest confirmed to direct. Uh, Scott Krupp of Limitless will produce together with Alex Lubavici and Steve Ponce of Hammerstone Studios, with Steven Soderbergh serving as an executive producer alongside Scott Fisher, John Ryan Jr., and John Santolini. I'm not going to get into the pre-production script and everything, uh, but I, I just, I gotta know, Tim, this is great news. I, I, this, now this one I can get behind because you know that much like with the recent hit Cobra Kai, um, which by the way, holy shit, you gotta watch that show. If you haven't watched that show, people, seriously, what the fuck are you doing? Go watch that show. Really? It's good. You can get, it is so fucking good. Really? I could not believe how good it was. I expected to watch this laughing at the cheese. Like, I thought it was going to be super great cheesy stuff, you know, nostalgic crap that they were kind of just building on for the fun of it. And so I was excited to see it just for that, you know, just something I could laugh at. And it, Oh, my God. It's like a five-hour, um, like, pretending that, um, pr- pretending that the next Karate Kid didn't ever happen right sorry hillary swank um but pretending like that didn't happen and they literally pick up 34 years after the first movie where they canonize two and three so two and three have actually happened when they come back and do the show it's literally like a five hour part four um that they broke into 10 episodes and it is fantastic they hit the nostalgic notes right um but they update the story um they have tons of respect for the characters and the source material and they bring in and the kids that they bring in for you know because it's new kids being trained um are just believable enough that you're that that even as an adult you can you can buy in um it's yeah it's fucking fantastic so I couldn't believe how good it was. So yes, YouTube Red is ten bucks a month for a single person, fifteen bucks a month for a family subscription, where um, six people in a household can share the subscription. But it's free. The first month's free. So the first two episodes are free, uh, completely, and then you can go get a YouTube Red subscription for a month for free, and then finish them off. Um. Yeah, I you got it. You got to yeah, so fucking good. Anyway, interesting. <laughs> 
Yes. I don't think right. I've actually ever seen any of the Karate Kid movies. What? Yeah, like, I know. not even the first one? No. And I even took uh, Kung Fu and I didn't even take the Karate Kid. Or I didn't take the Karate huh. I didn't even see the Karate Kid. Wow. That is... That is like... How is that... How is that impossible? <laughs> okay. I guess we're going to have to fix that. I was off watching Schindler's List and... In 1984, you were watching Schindler's List? I really want this time machine that I, you have. I had a premonition of all of the three hours of Schindler's List. <laughs> you, were, you were in Spielberg's head. I was. In 1984. No, well, I, I'm, and the nice thing about uh, Cobra Kai is it's good enough that it stands on its own. So even if you've not ever seen The Karate Kid, you will be able to immediately fall in with uh what's happening in the in the show and i will so admit i that. did watch uh i think like the first five minutes or so and i i was impressed by how it was shot and i liked the direction where they they took the story where the blonde-headed kid who got beat in the movie in the first karate kid yeah, is now Johnny lawrence right he's now like as what i could tell from the first 10 minutes or so he becomes like the sympathetic character whereas Machio. Yes, Daniel LaRusso, right. He's kind of like the jerk. Yeah, and the thing is, though, is that that it, it's kind of, I, I'm not, it, it's not misleading, but in helping you understand where William Zabka is at in terms of playing the character of Johnny Lawrence, you kind of have to experience being Johnny Lawrence, and they do that. So the the very next episode, though, comes at it from Daniel's perspective. So you actually get to pick up on Ralph Macchio was playing Daniel Russo. You get to see his home life and where he's at 34 years later. It's it's not as simple as because I kind of thought that's where they were going with it. Like, holy crap, Johnny Lawrence, the bully from the Karate Kid movie, becomes the new Mr. Miyagi. What the fuck? It's not that simple. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's so well done. But at any rate, <laughs> digression, <laughs> veering back around to get back on course. This is a movie that I have wanted so uh, to see for a long time. And Bill and Ted, we're we're back on yes, Bill, Bill and Ted. Ted. Back okay. to Bill and Ted. Back. And what, what what I meant to tie it into Cobra Kai with is that the lone holdout for having Cobra Kai happen was, or anything related to. Uh, Karate Kid, um, was, um, Ralph Macchio because his thing, which he's been stated in interviews as, he's like, I needed, I needed to know that the project would be something that would respect the source material, not just going back to the well and hoping for the best. And we all know here that the lone holdout has been Keanu Reeves. And so I have so much faith in this movie because if Keanu Reeves has signed on then we know it's something that in his opinion he is not going it's not going back to the well this is stuff that's going to treat the source material the way it needs to be treated which means we're going to get a good movie out of it so I am super 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 stoked about this one and I mean I was uh I was not the biggest friend uh, biggest fan of uh, bogus journey. I, I thought it was good, but I, I personally didn't think it really built as well as it could have on excellent adventure. And so, um, I, uh, so I really, really, really hope that, uh, this movie, you know, hits the buttons the way it should. And yet 
builds on it in its own, and it is is also its own great movie. Well, the good thing is that the original creators of Bill and Ted actually wrote the script, Chris uh, Matheson and Ed Solomon. So, and also the writer of, or I'm sorry, the director of Galaxy Quest is going to be directing the movie. So it, it, what I really liked about Bill and Ted, even Bogus Journey, is that the humor of it, it's all good-natured humor. There's, they're not ugly. They're not mean-spirited. The two guys are good-natured, and they could take any ridiculous situation that they are in and just have a good time dealing with it, you know? And that's what I really like about the movies. And honestly, I haven't seen Alex Winter. I can't even think of the last thing I saw Alex Winter in recently. Him and Keanu Reeves are just still two really cool guys. I see... Keanu Reeves every once in a while, probably more times than I should in Culver City. I don't know. I get maybe he lives around there. I run into him on the roads, on the streets, I guess, uh, every so often. And he just always seems really nice. And I'm excited to see him do something like this again. I'm behind it as well. From Deadline Hollywood, Deadline.com, Sylvester Stallone in line to take on Mexican Cartel in Rambo 5. This here is written by Andreas Weissman, and it says this. It's seemingly not over until it's over for Vietnam vet John Rambo, and even then it might not be over. Stallone is set to return for a fifth installment in the Rambo franchise. I understand. There were whispers. He may also direct, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Avi Learner's Millennium is launching sales on the project in Cannes with a tentative shoot date set for September of this year. Stallone is understood to be working on the script, and his Expandables collaborator, Lerner, will produce. In the fifth episode of the franchise, when the daughter of one of his friends is kidnapped, Rambo, who has been working on a ranch, crosses the U.S.-Mexican border and quickly finds himself up against the full might of one of Mexico's most violent cartels. Uh, the article does go on from there. Yes, apparently, uh, it, to get any sane person to take on the cartels one-on-one, there has to be the kidnapping of somebody's daughter, <laughs> some close friend's daughter, I suppose. The final sequel to announce here, via Consequence of Sound.net, Tenacious D announced sequel to The Pick of Destiny. This here is written by Alex Young, and it says this. A sequel to Tenacious D's 2006 musical comedy, The Pick of Destiny, is apparently on the way. During the band's performance at Shaky Knees Music Festival, Jack Black announced that a sequel movie will be released in October. Saying, quote, I don't know where you'll be able to see it, but we have decided that it's happening and it's coming out. End quote. Black told the crowd, according to AJC Music Scene, The original film was released in November 2006 to lukewarm reviews and tepid box office results, earning just $8.2 million in the U.S. However, the film achieved cult status amongst Hardcore D fans, thanks in part to its strong accompanying soundtrack. Foo Fighters frontman Dave Grohl also delivered a memorable cameo in the film's closing scene playing Satan in a rock-off against Black and Kyle Gass. Give 
one chance to rock your socks off. Fuck! Fuck! And the article goes on for just a tad more. Matthew, I know we we reviewed Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny here a few years ago for the show. Are you looking forward to a sequel? Uh, would you like a sequel? Or would you prefer the sequel to Rambo? Oh, if I had to pick, I would definitely pick Rambo. Stallone, even at his age and in this stage of his career, is so fucking full of surprises that I'm, I would want to see where he was going. Um, if I was to see anything in terms of a sequel to Pick of Destiny, it would literally just have to be another adventure completely unrelated that just happens to take place after Pick of Destiny for me to even be remotely interested in it. If it's tied to it at all, if it's got anything to do with Pick of Destiny, if it's, you know, the, you know, no. Because as you know, I wasn't the biggest fan of Pick of Destiny, but I still have respect for Tenacious D and what they can do and all that kind of stuff. If I had to pick one, Rambo, but there, I guess there is an avenue in which I might be moderately interested or at least have a bit of curiosity about a sequel. Last two pieces of news. This here I just wanted to mention because we're losing, especially here in Hollywood, in Los Angeles, I should say, a lot of foreign developers are coming in. A lot of outside developers are coming into town and tearing down a lot of old buildings and building up a ton of condominiums, high-rises, and whatnot. You're seeing it there also in Houston. But here, there's just something about L.A. It's it's a suburban city. You know, it's like you can go up and do one eight-story building and see for miles. And that is the appeal of living here, one of the many appeals of living here. And we're seeing a lot more skyscrapers, a lot more tall buildings, a lot more condos, and the price of rent is just insane. Via Los Angeles Daily News, that's www.dailynews.com. Book Castle Movie World in Burbank is closing after 51 years, and with it, a lot of the neighborhood personality. This here is written by Dennis McCarthy and published on May 3rd, and it says this. If Indiana Jones was looking for a map to the Lost Ark, he'd probably find it stuck in an old book on the top shelf of Steve Erdington's classic movie bookstore in Burbank, right next to the Maltese Falcon. The place is dusty, claustrophobic, filled with sketchy, interesting characters, and absolutely fun to get lost in for a few hours, digging through mounds of old books, magazines, still photographs, press kits, and other treasures of Hollywood's past, if your sinuses can handle it. The problem is Steve, 76, is closing the doors for good in a few weeks after 51 years in the bookselling business, and he's got to get rid of everything fast, so he's selling it for a song and basically giving away a lot of books he puts in boxes in front of his stores as he leaves every night. By morning, they're gone. He's a free spirit who got into the business by accident after the army sent him an invitation in 1964 he couldn't refuse, his draft notice. Off, he went to serve his country, but before he left, he loaned two friends a fair bit of cash to help them open a bookstore in Hollywood. They promised to pay him back with interest when he returned, but two years later, Steve returned to find his money spent, but an interesting opportunity at hand. 
saying, quote, they had a garage filled with books they weren't selling in their inventory, and they'd rented me an empty store down the block on Wilcox Avenue. They said, put the books in there, and in a couple of months, I'd make my money back three times over. Well, I thought I'd try it for a month or two, and here I am 51 years later. I've made that money back many times over, end quote. That little bookstore in Hollywood he owned for 13 years, Bond Street Books, led to a bigger one in Burbank, where he leased 11,000 square feet in an old Woolworths building on San Fernando Boulevard, watching his book city business grow to five bookstores in the area during the heyday of ink, paper, and full sentences. Now he's hunkered down, he says, in his last and final store, Bookcastle Movie World, right next door to that old Woolworths, where all the movie studios in town would come to see him for research material. Not anymore. It's all been digitalized and readily available online for free. The article most definitely goes on from there. If you live in the Burbank area or live in the Los Angeles area, please, please go visit this place. You might pick up a free book. You might want to, you know, get a poster. He sells posters as well. And hell, man, it's called Book Castle Movie World. Best of both worlds right there. I mean, you have to, if you're able to, please check it out. Uh, and again, that was courtesy of dailynews.com. And lastly, Matthew, you and I spoke about this for a short period of time before the show recording, during pre-show, I should say. And we're still a little bit at odds on this particular subject. Via cinemablend.com, how Henry Cavill feels about his Mission Impossible mustache affecting Justice League. This here is written by Adam Holmes. And it says this, While it didn't receive quite as negative a critical reception as fellow DC Extended Universe entries Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice in Suicide Squad, Justice League did have its fair share of problems. One of the movie's issues was the poor CGI work done to hide Henry Cavill's mustache, which he'd grown for his role in Mission Impossible Fallout. Due to the Justice League reshoots coinciding with Fallout's principal photography, Cavill wasn't able to shave off the upper lip decoration, but even he couldn't have predicted how just a little facial hair would have affected such a major superhero movie. Cavill recalled, saying, quote, I was slightly surprised. When we decided to go for the mustache, I certainly wasn't expecting all the events to unfold as they were going to unfold. I wasn't expecting Justice League reshoots to be as extensive as they were. When it came to that, it was one of those things where I'm in the middle of another movie, and to change my look for a movie that should have finished already becomes a real problem. And as you will see when the movie comes out, to have a fake mustache on would not have been a possibility. You'll think, okay, yeah, a fake mustache would perhaps have blown off in this situation. Unfortunately, it led to much dismay when Justice League came out, but that's the nature of things. You can't win every time. End quote. And I'll just end that article there. Matthew, do you have anything you would like to add on to this article or Book Castle Movie World article? No, I, I mean, as far as the movie world thing, that's definitely sad uh, to see an institution of that um, of that scope fade into the landscape. But um, you know, it's the it is the price we pay for progress. Um, you know, it, it's 
It's not always a zero-sum game, but economically, sometimes there is only the zero-sum, which is which is sad. Um, but it sounds like the guy's got a great attitude, and, you know, it's been a hell of a ride, so that's awesome. Sure. In terms of Superman's mustache, look, I get that reshoots are a thing, and I get that there are contractual obligations and stuff like that that sometimes you just can't help. But at the same time... Surely, surely we could have done something like give the man a couple weeks off to regrow his mustache. Because, uh, or, or, I don't know, something, um, something I imagine could have been done. Maybe spirit gum wouldn't have worked. Maybe we could have CGI'd a mustache on for the one scene. Who knows? All I know is that it, it looks fucking terrible it breaks the immersion of the movie and it adds to the reasons why people didn't like the movie so i'm sorry that he you know didn't have a choice in the matter i'm sorry that you know that that it was unavoidable especially on his regard because he didn't have anything to do with it in that aspect but it's still horrible and you can't change that either so they should have tried something else i guess at the end of the day i feel for the guy but that doesn't make what happened any better i can understand it but i can't condone it is that fair is that (laughs) sure yeah i mean i i would say this if any cgi work had to be done due to there being or not being a mustache on henry cavill or cavill whatever his name is I would rather that be done on Justice League than on Mission Impossible. Even if <laughs> even if he shaved off that mustache for his reshoots for Justice League, it still would have been shitty. Because a lot of his scenes were pretty shitty. Like the opening thing with the phone and the you know, him talking through the phone and giving that stupid speech. That was still pretty shitty. Mission Impossible has been a great series so far. Obviously, I haven't seen Fallout yet, but I mean, I you know, I pfft, I'm looking forward I take to it. it. For that. I know exactly. Like yeah. I'm, but I'm pretty so. sure it's going to be significantly better than Justice League. True. Through that lens, I can I can empathize with that sentiment. Um, if you have to choose one of the two movies to have terrible CGI, go with the one that's already got enough CGI in it that who really cares versus the one that you know has tons and tons of practical effects and stunt work that's as real as it can get because Tom Cruise is crazy. So, okay, I'm down. I'm down. I, I like your logic there. <laughs> um, you know, and I feel comfortable with living with, I can, I understand what happened. Uh, and I, and I understand Cavill's position. I, but you know, I don't, I still don't condone it. Yeah. So. Cause you're right. Just take a couple weeks. All right. Well, then I guess we should go ahead and jump into the movies. What do you say? Ooh, yes. I think we should. <laughs> All right, then. Here we go, folks. It's the movies. And this week's movies are Bad Samaritan, Tully, and Borg versus McEnroe. Uh, where would you like to start, sir? 
Well, how about Bad Samaritan, since Timmy Boy over here wasn't able to go see it? Okay, not a problem, not a problem. And much like you consoled me with Super Troopers, I hope to console you with Bad Samaritan. <laughs> Bad Samaritan. Now, where's last night? All right, man. Really? You still digital camera, man? You still use these? Absolutely. I love this one. Crazy to think what you could do if you did this for your full-time job. Just a poor, struggling artist. Enjoy your dinner, sir. See you in 10 minutes, brother. Welcome to Nino's. That's a beautiful car, sir. Yeah, don't touch it. Talk to me. Black car. Shut up, Doc, for real? Yeah, 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 yeah. Everything cool on your end, yeah? They're just getting their salads now, man. Just checking here. Jesus Christ! Help me, please! We don't have much time. You need me so soon. Maserati. I'll be right up. Dude, the guy's outside! Where the hell are you? I'm sorry. Visions! He's got a girl. Chained up. What were you doing at this guy's house? I was robbing him. So we're investigating a girl chained up in the office. Sorry to disappoint you. You're gonna stay on him, right? You're gonna keep searching for the girl? Stop harassing him. Oh! What's wrong? We're not safe. None of us. It's all good. I got your back. Crazy, you know that. Crazy people get caught. You know why you're not in their little jail right now? Because you're in mine. He's gonna kill us. I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna get you out of here. All right, so 2018 American horror thriller films directed by uh, Dean Devlin and stars uh, David Tennant, Robert Sheehan, Carlito Olivero, and Carrie Condon, uh, along with uh, a special appearance by um, Jacqueline Byers. Now, um, so what we have here is a young man by the name of uh sean falco he is an immigrant uh from ireland i assume based by based upon his accent who is who does nefarious work um as a valet where he gets access he and his partner in crime get access to people's homes and vehicles um because they're valets and then you know they do their burglary and stuff well Poor Sean has the unfortunate, uh, I guess, luck of discovering a woman being held captive in a sadist's home, a serial killer sadist's home. And uh, he wants to try and do the right thing, but at the same time, he has to try and protect himself uh, from legal ramifications, while at the same time not tipping off the serial killer. Played by David Tennant. Um, and, you know, thus shenanigans ensue. So, this movie has a lot of great ideas. Um, long-term serial killers, um, you know, incredibly intelligent um, serial killer uh, versus, you know, 
really trying to utilize today's technology to the greatest effect, uh, both for good and ill, uh, watching how law enforcement takes into account the way things work, um, and of course, survival in terms of the victims of serial killers, and also watching a serial killer at work and how a particular serial killer breaks their victim. And this particular serial killer is, uh, has a thing about horses. And so he takes his captives and breaks them like, like you would a horse. Um, and so again, really cool. Lots of really great ideas. Unfortunately, um, the execution is just terrible the writing is so so bad in this movie um the directing is is i don't want to say it's subpar but even given the piss poor writing the direction of this film is completely off kilter you've got scenes that are not just poorly edited but poorly acted and poorly uh staged and and as a result, a lot of the things that should flow together simply don't. You have um, Sean, as he's trying to escape and figure things out, uh, who doesn't understand how or why he's being outsmarted. And yet at the same time, the movie doesn't, uh, the, the way that the shot is framed, you're sitting there going, this doesn't make sense. And it's not the good kind of doesn't make sense where you're like, oh, this is a mystery. Oh, it's so clever. It's literally like you just using the common sense of someone you know, on the outside looking in going, but this doesn't make sense. And instead of it adding to the mystery or the thrill or providing a potential scare, you're just kind of left going, but this is stupid. And that's the biggest problem with this movie. No matter where the twists and the turns are, you're just kind of left going, but this is stupid. Um, a really good uh, thing is, a, a good example of this is when Sean and his buddy try to break into the house several hours after the initial event, um, and Tenant is on to them, but we don't know how he's on to them, and he's now... Um, using burner cells to, to, you know, as a concerned neighbor saying, Oh, my neighbor's house got broken into when it's actually his house that he set up to trick these guys to come in. But none of these things work out in terms of like the police responses, like stupid fast. Um, the guys are able to do this in pretty much, uh, daylight, um, action and then, the after after the initial guys barely trying to get away with everything as the cops come bursting in because they think they're in the wrong house even though they're not this meticulous man has who set this whole thing up on his own somehow forgot to close the window that he staged to be open and replace the screen that was cut when the guys climbed in when the cops come by you know when a detective comes by to be like well what happened here i mean Again, you're sitting there going, but that doesn't make sense. It's just, it's just kind of stupid. Also, the whole setup, again, behind this guy, David Tennant being the serial killer who breaks people like horses, stems from this event in his childhood where he, you know, kills a horse by breaking it. Well, as much as I applaud 
um, not you know, the humane treatment of animals and everything. And we're always looking, you know, humane society and all that kind of stuff. Um, simply creating a terrible CGI session to have this kind of like dream state where you're reliving David Tennant as a child killing a horse and killing his trainer. You know, you can't just use bad CGI to cover for the fact that you just don't want to um, either pay for or risk hurting an animal. I applaud not wanting to hurt animals, but you've got to make this stuff believable. And it's not. It's horrible CGI. I know we're just coming off of the, you know, soups in his mustache. I would rather see soups in his mustache than the horrible CGI that they put into this movie to drive this point home. And aside from David Tennant doing such a fantastic job as the villain, there's just not really a whole lot that this movie brings to the table. When you, when you attempt to bury somebody and you put a coating of lie on the ground and you throw people on top of this coating of lie, uh, that start, that's kind of like contact and should start burning their skin and they just pretend like they don't even care. Uh, you know, again, it just doesn't make sense. I did really like watching Portland, though. It was fun to see all the sights and stuff from Portland. That was great. But this movie just... It's just not that good, guys. I'm sorry. It's just not that good. I give this one a 2.25, mainly because it has so many great ideas, and Tenet plays a great bad guy. But that's that's all there is to it. 2.25 out of 5. Well, that's a shame. I really like David Tennant, and I I was hoping that he would find that good, not necessarily breakout film role here in the U.S., but he just, he, he's a really good actor. And he does a really great job overall as the bad guy. I mean, you, you know, you definitely believe that he's sick. You definitely believe that when he wants to be in control, he's in control. Uh, and as the movie progresses and, you know, things are starting to happen because, you know, good guy versus bad guy kind of a thing it's fun to kind of watch him unglued come unglued as a character but it's just not enough i mean he plays the character well but that still doesn't make the character well written and it doesn't make the story any better which is a shame well well, good i i don't feel so bad not seeing it see that's what i was trying to i was trying to you know Make you feel better. Where do you want to turn from here, sir? We still have Tully and Borg versus McEnroe. Let's do uh, Borg versus McEnroe. Well, then let's do it. It's the perfect rivalry. The baseline player and the net brusher. The Swede, who at only 24, could make history by winning his fifth Wimbledon. Can McEnroe pull Borg from his throne, Arthur? The only thing standing between Borg and that record is you. You and Borg are as different as two people could possibly be. Is he backstage or something? Is he going to, like, jump out of the cage? McEnroe is the bigger talent, but playing Borg is like being hit by a sledgehammer. How does it feel knowing you'll make history if you win your fifth Wimbledon? I'm just like uh, anybody else. I'm not a machine. The question, Turkov, answer the question! The ball's on the line! Turk's all over, man! I'm going to issue you a warning for unsportsmanlike behavior. What do you have to say about your behavior? Let's talk about tennis. Does anybody have any tennis questions? Do you expect anyone to root for you in the final against Borg? Look, I I get that uh, you got your hero, you know, your gentleman, Borg, and you need a villain. Shut up! You don't understand what it takes to play tennis. Where people are talking more about You know, I go out there and I give everything for this game? Everything. Everything in me gets left out on that court. And none of you understand it because none of you do it. Do I know 
what Bjorn's doing right now. He's in bed. His room is cold because he wants his pulse below 50 beats a minute. Every year he trains on the same court. He rents the same car. He sleeps in the same room. What is that? You'll never be remembered as one of the greats. You know why? Because nobody likes you. The only thing people are going to say is... You cannot be serious! That crazy guy that always yelled at the umpire. Can either man take any more punishment? Oh. All right. Borg versus McEnroe. Uh, 2017 film. It's actually kind of like a, a truly international film. It's co-produced, multi-language, biographical sports drama film. Uh, and this goes between the huge, huge rivalry that developed between Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe during the 1980 Wimbledon Championships, which ultimately leads to their encounter as the men's singles final, which to this day is still considered the greatest game of tennis ever played. There are people who argue that Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal back in 2008 overtook it, but it kind of arguably goes back and forth between these two matches. So the rivalry behind it and the and the sportsmanship behind it and everything is is really intense. Um, and having grown up watching John McEnroe um, play, I didn't. I, I literally started learning how to play tennis when I was 11 years old because I watched John McEnroe and I wanted to be amazing like that. Um, <laughs> so uh, it didn't go anywhere clearly. But I, you know, just wanted to have that kind of a command of a crowd. The movie itself, though, is good in its cinematography. And I think that the movie is good in its showcasing the way that the way that the world dictated this match as much as Borg and McEnroe did. Um, the the problem with the movie for me is Shia LaBeouf. And, I mean, strictly speaking, he's more or less half the movie. Um, and my problem was Shia LaBeouf on a professional level. With everything that has gone on in his career outside of the screen and all of the crazy shit that's happened, um, you would think that he would, he would actually be the perfect casting for someone like John McEnroe. The problem is, is that he, he literally embodies in the, in the cinematic world everything that was negatively connotated about McEnroe in the tennis world. And for me, I could not separate the two. I could not stop seeing Shia LaBeouf and start seeing John McEnroe. And it just seemed to me like Shia LaBeouf was trying to channel his own version of his craziness into the persona of John McEnroe. And again... Much like you can't do a Han Solo movie when Harrison Ford is still alive, you can't really do Johnny Mac when Johnny Mac is still out there doing commentating and being in the public eye and still having a moderated version, but still having the fierceness of that persona out today. All I saw was Shia LaBeouf trying to do a McEnroe impression. And it broke the movie for me. Um, but all of the elements around that 
are well done. I like the blend of the uh, multilingual aspect. Um, as usual, Stellan Skarsgård is awesome. Um, I, I think that uh, uh, her name is Tuva Novotny as Mariana Simonosko. Uh, I thought she was just outstanding. She plays um, Borg's fiance. Um, you know, there are lots of great moments in the film and I like, and, and I like, I like the way that they focus on the tennis as well. I, I, and again, the cinematography is great. Um, but I just can't get over, um, I think Shia LaBeouf was a miscast for this, despite all things to the contrary that you might think he would be good for. But at the end of the day, I do give this one 3.5 out of 5. That's all I have to say about that. What do you got there, Tim? I more or less agree with you. I thought Borg, he came across as a true to honest human character in the way that not only the actor who is a, in Sweden, he's fairly popular. Sverre Sverre Gudensen. Yeah. Sverre Gudensen. The way he portrays Borg is honest. Like he comes across as a true to honest human character you know there's a lot of nuance to his performance there's a lot of like interesting flashbacks to show you why his persona is the way it is he comes across as cold quiet and sure about every single move that he makes not just on the court but throughout his day-to-day life he just has that look to him, you know, this ultra serious look to him. I got it. However, whereas with McEnroe, he came across as a performance, not handled with as much care or nuance. I thought Shia LaBeouf did a very good job. I think a lot of it was at the hands of the writers, even the director, to me, it felt like the filmmakers were trying to make the movie more appealing to English-speaking audiences with having so much focus or having so much particular focus on on, on McEnroe, but it seemed like they crafted the story and the character of Borg with more affection. And it takes a great deal away from the movie because this movie focuses or attempts to focus on these two characters evenly there's definitely an unbalance between how real one character is to another character. And when the movie is trying to, again, make the notion that these two guys are very similar, when one is very stoic and always in a state of concentration, and the other is more outlandish, more crass, more in your face, and the movie's trying to make that point. But if you do not have solid characters on both ends, that point kind of falls flat and becomes pointless. The cinematography is beautiful. I love the use of the 70s vintage color palette uh, because the look of it really puts you into the setting. So it's just a shame that the characters faltered because this would have been something absolutely spectacular if it worked all the way around. You know, like there are more outlandish things that McEnroe does that just comes across as movie outlandish, plot outlandish than it does, you know, real McEnroe outlandish. 
apparently McEnroe wasn't a big fan of the movie, and he was saying that a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, wasn't really true. He made a comment that I thought was really funny. I forgot where I read it, but he said something along the lines of, they really made me out to be a dick in this movie. However, they went about it in the completely wrong way. He's like, I really wasn't. If they really wanted to show how much of a dick I was, I could have given them ideas. I could have told them the exact real things that actually happened at the time that he did. And I wish they did it because they had something really good, really, really good. And unfortunately, it didn't fully pay off. I will say this, the final match, which is like the last 20, 25 minutes of the film, is a beautiful piece of editing. There's great tension building, which puts the audience completely into the heads of both Borg and McEnroe. If anything, this movie is completely worth watching for that final match. But it is still above average film. It's better than just good. So I am going to land on four out of five. I really did like this one, despite its faults. All right. Well, then I guess that's going to leave us with uh, Tully, is it not, sir? Yes, it is. Here we go. Tully. Do you know what a night nanny is? They take care of the baby at night so mom and dad can get some sleep. I don't want a stranger in my house. It's like a Lifetime movie where the nanny tries to kill the family and the mom survives and she has to walk with a cane at the end. Get over yourself. Mom, what's wrong with your body? Hello. I'm Telly. I'm here to take care of you. I'm just not used to people doing things for me. I hold a baby all day, and then nighttime rolls around and I'm supposed to just switch gears, like, hello, I'm all sexy now. You're empty. Yeah. No, you're empty on this side. <sighs> Your 20s are great. But then your 30s come around the corner like a garbage truck at 5 a.m. Girls kill. No, we don't. We might look like we're all better, but if you look close, we're covered in concealer. You're convinced that you're this failure, but you actually made your biggest dream come true. If you want to run off or something, I get that. Because I want to do that too sometimes, but I'm not gonna. I'm here to help you with everything. You can't fix the parts without treating the whole. Yeah. No one's treated my hole in a really long time. 2018 dramedy film. Uh, it's directed by Jason Reitman, son of Ivan Reitman. Written by Diablo Cody. Film stars uh, Charlize Theron, Mackenzie Davis, Mark Duplass, and Ron Livingston. Um, and what we have here is a woman by the name of Marlo, who is a struggling mom. She's got two kids um, and a third on the way. She's exceptionally pregnant. Uh, her rich... Her ultra-rich brother, uh, they both come from nothing, and while Marlo and her husband don't, uh, are by no stretch of the imagination in the poorhouse, uh, they definitely do not do as well as her brother does. Her brother is clearly like, you know, just mega rich. Um, as a special gift to his sister, he hires a night nanny, someone to help, uh, who, who comes literally at night, takes care of the baby while you're sleeping so that you can actually get some sleep and recover from the day. Um, and if, like in this instance, Marlo uh, breastfeeds, the, the night nanny will wake you for breastfeeding and then take the baby off. Uh, 
and who should arrive but free-spirited Tully. Uh, she's just, um, she just seems to be the cure for what ails Marlowe. And Marlowe goes on her own journey of uh, self-rediscovery, thanks to the loving and n- nudging of Tully in her life. And, as always, shenanigans ensue. Now, this movie for me, I thought was... Um, it, it, it is an, it's an expert tale in simplistic movie telling, um, in simplistic storytelling within a film. That is not a put down. Sometimes you just need a simple story. You don't need a whole lot of convoluted details. You don't need a whole lot of action and everything. You just have a simple setting, simple characters who are still compelling despite the simplicity of their being. They're still humans with, you know, just like all of us with our own idiosyncrasies and our own thoughts and dreams and, uh, and, and, uh, and thoughts and patterns and all that kind of stuff that drive us to be the way that we are. Um, so you can be simple yet compelling. The problem with this movie is that it takes its simplicity and it drives its point home through narratives that are done in a series of montages. Now, the montages to the film are very, very important, combined with uh, certain dreamlike settings um, involving uh, water, okay, um, which is, which in and of itself is fine because it's, you know, it's a dreamlike state, it's water, so you can kind of imagine what you want to imagine as you're seeing Marla go through these things. But a lot of the stuff that they do are done through montages. And the montages are very, very simple, um, often uh, comprising of very few things uh, and usually a very, very simple tune or just a simple score in the background while these are going on. The problem is Reitman doesn't know when to pull them in. And every single montage of this film goes on for far too long generally 20 seconds or more too long and it's again some of it's to make sure that you understand how mundane things are or how simple things can be and yet still you're moving forward in life or forward in the story or forward in life however you want to see that artistically but that doesn't make it good it just makes it slow. And that the movie suffers from that a lot. The other thing that bothers me about the movie is that the, the, the way that the movie chooses to go about executing the final third of the film, um, it, it's not a bait and switch. It's not out to trick you. But it doesn't allow you to come to the natural conclusion that the film is coming to as a result. And it hurt it a lot, which is sad because um, Charlize Theron and Mackenzie Davis do a really good job of having this almost innate chemistry, which I mean, which would would make the movie if the chemistry between these two actresses were, were was bleh, if the chemistry was not there. 
um, this movie would be terrible, uh, no matter how well written, no matter how well executed. And so that aspect remains in check throughout the entirety of the film. But despite that, there's still no reason for the film to execute its third act the way that it does, especially when it's, when the montages that happen in the first two acts tend to slow the film down. I like this movie and I love the character of Marlowe, just absolutely outstanding. I also thought that Ron Livingston did a great job. And I think that Reitman clearly has talent, but it's, it's just a flawed execution, but the movie is still likable. So I give this one a 3.25 out of five. And I guess just bring us home there, Tim. I really wanted to love this film because of how they handled the subject matter. I thought it was pretty interesting. I was also a big fan of Young Adult, which came out back in 2011, which was also uh, written by Diablo Cody, directed by Jason Reitman, and uh, starring Charlie's Theron. And yeah, so that one came out in 2011, and roughly it was about Charlize Theron, who's a fiction writer, goes back to the small town that she came from, where she is wanting to pretty much rekindle an old romance with an ex that she had who is now happily married. So of course, Charlize Theron's character is stuck in the past, and really she has not grown up yet. It was just a really nice film that had a very organic way of going about showing this woman maturing <laughs> this young adult maturing and i it was it was nice because the movie was a comedy but there was also romance found in other ways that was surprising and because of that that trifecta, because of that trifecta returning with Tully, I was expecting not more of the same, but a pleasant surprise. That mixed with what Tully is about, the feeling I, I got from the trailer, I was just really excited to see this film. And there are moments while watching the film when I experienced absolute beauty and hopefulness you know, that that's really rarely captured in a film like this. But unfortunately, there were a lot of convoluted issues that were put into the story for the sake of making Marlowe and even Drew, her husband, but mainly Marlowe, crazy, <laughs> needing the help of Tully to really save her from drowning, to keep her from drowning, metaphorically and figuratively. <laughs> and that just really takes away from the charm of the story. To give you an example, Charlize Theron's son, she has two kids. Uh, well, she just gives birth to a, a baby who one of the main reasons why she hires Tully to come in and uh, watch after the baby at night. But her oldest son clearly is on the spectrum. He has some kind of, he has a form of, I don't know if it's Down syndrome or whatever, but he is clearly on the spectrum. I could be wrong about that, but it's clear that something is going on. Now, I, I'm not a pro, but I know enough because uh, my nephew, he is on the spectrum. And it took a little while 
for uh, his parents to realize this. But once they realized it, they did something about it. The school did something about it. The school bent over backwards to help guide them in putting their kid in a special school or into these special classes uh, that would better help him out. This is in Texas. You know, this is in Tomball, Texas. And this movie takes place in New York. And given this day and age when people are more aware of it, there's great awareness towards kids that have these learning disabilities or these sensory uh, deficiencies or whatever. There's so much awareness around it that you would think this prestigious school in the New York area would be willing to help her out in some way. I just felt all of that just totally contrived to bring the character to her breaking point. And that's just really, that was one of the main things that didn't sit well for me. I know it had to have been a little easier. Like it, this is something that should have happened Years before, because the kid wasn't in kindergarten. The boy was in what? Like, I guess he wasn't the oldest kid. Maybe he was the second oldest kid. I don't remember. He was maybe in, what, second grade or something like that. They should have known about this in preschool, even. So, to me, that contrivance did not make sense. There are a lot of little things, that was a bigger thing, that were specifically there just to bring Tully to her breaking point. And with Drew, her husband, he's the type of guy in this movie where he's on his bed. Every night, he puts on his headset and he's playing video games. Okay, well, is he a good father? Is he actually a good husband? The movie doesn't really explore that aspect. It goes directly to Tully. So I'm going to land on 3.5 out of 5. And that is mainly because of the great Charlize Theron uh, I really like Lon, uh, Ron Livingston, and I'm a big fan of Duplass. Their presence and their performances were enough to elevate this film from just a 3 to at least a 3.5. It's a good movie, but just keep in mind, there are a lot of contrivances. Well, then, I guess that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be Deadpool 2, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, and The Rachel Divide. Yes, 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 and uh, without further ado, I guess it's time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! Can I help you find something? Sure, I'm not having a ton of luck here. Is this something for work? No, it's a special occasion. It's not a formal occasion. I'm looking for something chic, clean, but also a bit edgy. Okay, we have some adorable new dresses that just came in. Yeah, do you have a uh, Marc Jacobs? Uh, no, I don't think we have that one. I'm going to a rock concert with an old flame. And I think there is a chance we may reconnect. <laughs> Let's show him what he's been missing. No, he's seen me recently. He knows. But his wife hasn't seen me in a while, so. Well, it's the end of my shift, and my son has to be picked up from school. So I'm just going to send over another associate. She's up on all the trends. Shauna? Oh. 
all the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitTwit12345. You can, of course, cover more than information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter, if that's your heart's desire. And, as always, don't forget to uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, uh, follow us on Right, so you know, follow us on Stitcher Radio uh, and track us down on the old SoundCloud. Don't forget as well that we are also on Patreon. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to David Tennant, I get to say this. I remember a conversation with my parents about who the people on the TV were and learning they were actors and they acted out this story and just thinking that was the most fantastic notion. And that's what I want to do. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, farewell, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.